Well, good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Good. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles to the New Testament with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Here's just a disclaimer. I've been struggling with this cold, and so I have this cough. So I am, I am going to do everything in my power to, to suppress the cough. But just in case it happens, I'm giving you a forewarning, okay? We're going to hand out rain ponchos for the first section here. But we decided we haven't, we've been okay so far. So I think, I think we'll be all right. But uh, anyway, uh, I haven't seen you guys since Thanksgiving, before Thanksgiving. So I hope you had a great holiday, enjoyed some time with family and friends. But uh, I don't know, is it me or does it seem like Thanksgiving goes by faster and faster and faster every year? To me, it's just like a blur. In some ways, it gets a raw deal. It's like Thanksgiving has become Christmas's ugly cousin. You know what I mean? Uh, in fact, I, I saw this cartoon the other day, and it just it just made me laugh because I, I, you know, here's this turkey telling Santa Claus to wait his turn. But then I'm, I looked at it a little bit more, and I'm thinking, well, hold, wouldn't you think a turkey would want to skip Thanksgiving? So apparently, they're not the most intelligent birds. Tasty but not particularly bright. Anyway, it's kind of how it all works these days. You know, Thanksgiving's on Thursday, but on Friday, the Christmas you know, decorations, all the Christmas stuff comes out, and by Sunday, it's official Advent begins. Now, if you're like me and you didn't come from a particularly religious home, historic Christian terminology can be a, a bit uh, intimidating. Uh, take, for example, this word Advent. What does that really mean? And I've learned that it's quite simple. It, it, it just comes from a Latin term, adventus, meaning the arrival of or the coming of. And since somewhere around the 5th century AD, Christians around the world have referred to the four weeks leading up to Christmas as the season of Advent, you know, a time to focus on the, on the arrival of Jesus and the significance of his birth. And so each Sunday of Advent, we light a candle that represents some aspect of the Christmas narrative. But here's the deal. Culturally speaking, Christmas has come to mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And yet no matter how some try to redefine it, at its very core, Christmas is about not, not only God's love for the world, but his arrival in the world. And so to try and reaffirm this reality uh, this morning, I thought we could look at what the Apostle John has to say about it all, because here in the first chapter of his biography of Jesus, really in three simple sentences, John is able to summarize this event that took place nearly in Bethlehem nearly 2,000 years ago, an event that has changed the course of history forever. What does John have to say? Well, I thought we could just read it together. So we're going to read it out loud. We're going to read it with enthusiasm because it is God's word. It is the message of Advent. Okay, ready? Here we go. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So I want to talk a little bit more about that with you before we do. Let's pray. Our Father, I am thankful for the opportunity for us to be together this morning. And in the, the chaos of the holidays, I pray that in the few minutes we have, you would allow us to focus our attention on what is right, on what is true, on what is good. We might focus on you. And Lord, we recognize that in the season of Advent, we talk about things like hope and love and, uh, and mercy and and peace. And yet as we look at the world around us, we, uh, we tend to see the opposite. We see hopelessness. We see hate and violence. We see injustice and division. We see it globally. We see it here in our own nation. And um, I pray this morning that you would help us as your people, as the church, to understand how we can make a difference. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, teach us, 
in the short time that we have. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the centuries, incarnation is another one of those kind of fancy theological words that Christian scholars have used to describe what the Apostle John writes about Jesus here in his biography on Jesus. It comes from the Latin term incarnare, literally means in the flesh. And John John says that Jesus was in the beginning. He was God with God. He was God. And all things uh, through him, all things were made. Then he says, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Here's my Reiki summary of that. He's saying, in Jesus, the one who was invisible became visible. Deity took on flesh and blood and hung out with humanity. And again, as, as Christmas approaches, a lot of people are going to overlook that. But as Christians, you know, we're going we're gonna to light candles to symbolize it. We're going to sing carols, carols to celebrate it. We're going we're gonna, to uh, exchange gifts to reflect it. Basically, we're going to do whatever we can to acknowledge this amazing reality. But ultimately, for me, the question comes down to what does God's incarnation, his in the fleshness mean to us on a regular basis? I mean, if you believe it, what's the implication? Is it just a holiday, December holiday deal, or is it something more? Now, I'm not, look, I'm not a theological scholar. I I realize men and women a lot smarter and more educated than me have written and lectured on this topic of incarnation quite extensively. I don't view myself on an intellectual par with any of those folks. I'm just a, I'm a simple guy. And so I tend to think of of Jesus' birth, deities in the fleshness in a very simple and practical way. For me, overall, the incarnation represents the blending together of truth, mystery, and mission. And it, and it carries for us as Jesus' followers implication uh, on how uh, implications on how we approach life. Or to put it another way, if we really believe in the incarnation, then every day we will fully embrace the truth of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about his historical legitimacy, because even staunch atheists concede Jesus was a real man who walked the earth. He lived, he died. He was obviously good and smart enough to have an unparalleled impact on history. And most everyone who celebrates Christmas believes that. But the incarnation demands more of us, don't you think? To to affirm that deity uh, has come in the flesh and dwelt among us means we embrace everything about Jesus. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, at least to me, that God would go so far as to take on human form, enter history just to lie to us as if pulling off some kind of an elaborate, divinely orchestrated practical joke. No, it seems logical that if and when we believe in the incarnation, that in Jesus, God shows up in the flesh on the earth, then we will fully embrace everything about him. We'll accept all of his claims as God's honest truth. And just for the record, Jesus didn't, simply imply divinity by way of miracles, which were impressive, or by way of his his willingness to forgive sin, which is the prerogative of God alone, Jesus came right out and claimed to be God, which is why the religious experts of the day wanted to kill him, because that's what he said. And if we believe that, if we believe that the incarnation was and is true, then we will believe not just some of, but all of Jesus's claims. And will will obey his, all of his teaching because it's the teaching of God himself. And the most basic tenet of that teaching was that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In short, Jesus came for us. He came to hang out with us. He came to provide human beings a living, breathing example of God's love and grace, offering us what we cannot earn ourselves, what we cannot buy, what we cannot manipulate, forgiveness of sin and life everlasting. The Apostle John expresses it this way. He says, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. So understand, to affirm the incarnation means to embrace not only the truth of Jesus, but Jesus himself as God and Savior who said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The incarnation also requires we embrace mystery. And tell me, how does the invisible become visible? How can the eternal invade the temporal? How can deity mingle with humanity? How can God himself wrap himself uh, in, in, in and with flesh and blood? If you can explain that to me, great. I'm ready to listen. If you can't, no worries. Just so you know, I can't, I can't explain it either. Which means as Christians, we have to accept and live with that which defies intuition, a, a paradox we can't fully comprehend or explain. It's fascinating to me how um, we live in a culture today that has grown increasingly skeptical and cynical of organized religion, yet remains uh, exceedingly spiritual. And the majority of Americans believe in God, over 90%. Some studies have it as high as 94%. Nine out of 10 high school students believe in God. And so as, as, a, as a collective culture, we, we have this innate sense that something big exists beyond ourselves, beyond what, what we can see and hear and t- touch and taste and smell. And so there's this common search for the transcendent, you know, for something independent of the material universe. And the thing is, people aren't dumb. I mean, people aren't dumb. Most people recognize that if God does in fact exist, then we as finite human beings can't completely know and understand everything about him. There's just no way we can do that. And you know what? They're right. They're right. Sometimes I think that as Christians, we lose people in dialogue when we try to present God in a, in a neatly packaged systematic theology, inferring that we've got him totally figured out. Now, Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting theology is bad, and I'm not saying God hasn't revealed enough about himself through nature uh, and through scripture and through Jesus himself that we can't know him. I'm just saying we have to admit that when it comes to, to the divine, when it comes to God, a tension exists between revealed truth and incomprehensive mystery. Let's face it, there are, there are things about God, our infinite creator, about who he is, what he does, why he does it, how he does it, that extend beyond our finite ability to, to, to grasp. And that, I, I, look, I get it. It makes some of us really anxious, but we need to work through that anxiety. And we need to be okay with that limitation because God's okay with it. In fact, a few weeks ago, we, we finished a study in the Old Testament, in the book of Job. And if, you're, you know, if you were here, you know that we learned Job was a guy whose life was in, in many respects like ours. He had his ups, his downs, his successes, his failures, his joy, and a whole, a whole lot of suffering. I mean, he went through it all, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the tragic. And one day as Job was wrestling with the mystery of who God is and, and why he does what he does and why he allows what he allows, God said to Job, he said, Job, no offense, but you don't and you can't know everything. You can't. And you remember, you remember how, God's, how God pointed out, remember God, God asked Job a bunch of questions. Remember he said, he said, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Who marked off its, uh, its dimensions? Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea when it burst forth? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place and said, this far you may come, but no farther. Here Here's where your proud waves halt. In other words, he says, Job, where were you when I created the oceans and the beaches and the tidal currents? And God went on from there. He said, have you ever given orders to the morning? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? He says, if you have, tell me. Job, have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen my storehouses of hail? 
who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with with grass do you know the laws of the heavens can you raise your voice to the clouds and send lightning bolts on their way do they report to you saying here we are and god goes on for four chapters asking these questions finally job says okay lord i get it he says i know you can do all things no plan of yours can be thwarted surely i spoke of things i do not understand things too wonderful too vast for me to know in short with humility job admits to his creator he says you are god and i am not and i can't possibly comprehend everything about you what you do how you do it why you do it job said i simply trust you and if you recall the text says the lord accepted job's prayer you see in a universe created by a sovereign designer who has a plan for our world, a plan for us, there are things that we can know and explain, and there's things that we can't. Science, technology, human reason, you know, can answer an awful lot of questions about life and our existence, but cannot explain everything. So we live on this mysterious edge, this point where the natural is intersected by the, by the supernatural. And as Christians, as people of faith, we should be the first to admit that because at the center of our theology rests this idea of incarnation. Now, you know, some religions teach that God is so imminent that incarnational uh, incarnation is just normal it's a normal thing for example buddhism hinduism see the divine in every every single thing on the flip side religions like judaism and islam say god is so transcendent that incarnational or incarnation is impossible well christianity is is different from all of them because christianity doesn't say incarnation is normal and it doesn't say it's impossible christianity says god is so imminent anything is possible, so transcendent that his arriving in the flesh is going to be a paradigm-shattering, life-transforming, history-altering event. And that's exactly what we've seen. In Jesus, God has dwelt among us. Talk about truth and mystery. I mean, if you affirm the incarnation, you have to embrace both of those. We also, uh, we also have to embrace the concept of mission, which really Christmas is all about. And the incarnation isn't just about a baby in a manger. It's, a, it's about God entering the context of human history. It's about a miraculous event predicted over 700 years before it happened by the ancient Hebrew prophet Isaiah. He said, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. In short, the birth of Jesus was part of of an eternal plan whereby God himself would come in the flesh to love, heal, serve, forgive, and ultimately rescue rebellious, wounded, broken, messed up people like me. And what's interesting is how this this divine mission began on a local level. You know, it all started in a little town and then slowly expanded. I realize over the last... 12 months or so, we've talked a lot about what God is doing globally in places like India and Asia and the Middle East. We're going to talk about it again next week. And it's important to talk about because, I mean, look, the good news of God's love and grace is for everybody. It's for everybody. It's not limited to race or socioeconomic status or politics or international boundaries. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Clearly, the incarnation carries a global purpose, but it all started on a local level. You know, it started with Jesus dwelling among, as the Apostle John puts it, or as I put it, hanging out with family, friends, neighbors, the people he came to rescue, his local community. You see, deities in the fleshness had a very practical, everyday aspect to it. Jesus, he was all about establishing relationships with average, everyday, imperfect people, religious and irreligious alike, didn't make a difference. The thought of which, by the way, just infuriated the religious experts that he would hang out with such people. 
So they criticized them constantly for it. At one point, Jesus responded to them and he said, you know, John the Baptist isolated himself from everybody out in the wilderness. He came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you said he had a demon. He says, I come, the son of man comes eating and drinking. You say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. Basically, Jesus was saying, there's no winning with you religious guys. But here's the point. Dwelling among people is is what Jesus came to do. And loving and hanging out with lost men and women is exactly what he did. In fact, if you read through all of John's biography from start to finish, you'll see how that's true. If you read through the, the John's work, you'll see how in Jesus... For example, God went to weddings. In John chapter 2, Jesus went to a wedding. He mingled with people. He entered into family life. His first miracle was performed at at a wedding in Cana. The groom's family ran out of wine for the celebration, and so Jesus turned water into wine. And it wasn't just ripple. I mean, it was the best stuff people tasted all day. And he he gave it so that they could could continue the the, the reception party. God went to the workplace. John chapter 2, he went to Jewish fishing boats. Stopped by Roman tax booths. God went to the temple where he participated in the spiritual practices of his people. God went to wells, local watering holes, the the first century equivalent of Starbucks or Pete's Coffee. You know, it's a place where people had to go every day. Uh, it was the social hangout. It was a place where people would meet and talk. God went to feasts. John chapter five. He went and shared in community life. God went to pools public baths. They were called mitzvahs where people would go for ceremonial washing and for prayer and healing. God went to the marketplace where people were busy buying and selling goods. It was in that consumeristic context. Jesus talked about how money can just ruin you. God went to picnics. John chapter six, he went to a big one and and he took some bread and sardines and fed several thousand people. God went on boat trips. God went to funerals. God went to small villages and big cities where he broke down racial and socioeconomic barriers. He went to dinner parties. sometimes sitting with friends, sometimes sitting among strangers, sometimes sitting with his enemies. God went to court where he was trumped up on false charges. God went to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the place of crucifixion, where in innocence, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. And from there, God went to the tomb and three days later was raised to life and back hanging out in the cemetery and then showing up in the locker room in Jerusalem and then at a fish bake on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Listen, all of this recorded by John in his writing is to validate what he says in his opening statement. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, we have seen him. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John says, God walked with us. We heard his voice. We shook his hand. He listened to us. He taught us. He fed us. He served us. He healed us. He sacrificed himself for us. Through the incarnation, Emmanuel lived out his mission, embodying the love, the grace, the eternal friendship God offers to those who believe in him. And see, Jesus didn't just lecture the good news. He lived it every single day. He came into the world to engage depravity, to serve, to rescue broken, sinful people. The incarnation is all about mission. It's all about mission. And get this, the last thing Jesus did on earth was to transfer that that mission of local engagement and service and rescue to his followers, to the church, to us. You know, following the resurrection, remember, Jesus went to that room in Jerusalem where John and Matthew and Peter and all the rest of the guys were hanging out. No idea what to do next. Jesus shows up. And what does he say? He says, as the father, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. That's incarnational language. He says, I don't want you guys cloistering yourselves away here in this room inside these walls. He says, get out, get into the world, live, love, serve, give, sacrifice yourself for others. Be like me. Dwell among average, everyday people, the rich, the poor, you know, the homeless, the hungry, the well-fed, doesn't matter. 
He says, incarnate, incarnate yourself in people's lives. What does that mean? Well, it means spending time in their homes. Maybe it means inviting them to your home. You know, maybe it means being a regular at Starbucks, our cultural connecting place and meeting with people, participating in community life and events. It means celebrating with those who rejoice in the good things of life and mourn with those who are suffering. It means giving to those in need, tending to the sick, loving the unlovable, hanging out with outcasts, feeding the hungry. Means asking questions, showing interest in people's lives, listening to people's stories, sharing your own story. Jesus said, Through your love, your grace, your generosity, point people to me. And when it's appropriate, speak the truth. Tell people about me. Just make sure your life supports your words. Matthew 28, he told his followers, Go and make disciples, incarnational language. Mark 16, Go into the world, incarnational language. Acts chapter 1, he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, which is a fascinating statement because not only is it incarnational, but it also follows the, the ministry model of Jesus. God's mission that we are now part of is to live out the good news beginning locally and then expanding outward. And here's the deal. It's not an option. As God's people, it is, it is our identity. It's who we are. We're salt. We're light. We're love. We're grace. We're people of mission. Now, here's the rub. Uh, Jesus did not dictate a programming schedule, which can be really frustrating for us because we in the church like programs. We love programs. Why? I think it's because programs have a beginning and an end. You know, limited, limited commitment, limited time, energy, and resources. But I tell you, as far as I can see, as far as I can tell, Jesus never talked about programs. He talked about mindset. He talked about attitude. He talked about lifestyle because pro- participating in God's mission to the world happens in our homes. It happens at our jobs, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, on football fields, basketball courts, coffee shops, just everyday, everyday ordinary places. So yeah, some of it happens Sunday morning too, but it's not limited to these three hours a week on Sunday morning. It's just not. In fact, at the end of this month, on Sunday, December 28th, uh, our, our, our leadership was talking about it. We decided we're not going to hold any services here on that Sunday morning. And we're calling it Family Worship and Service Sunday or Service Weekend, however you want to put it. And it's not, it's not that the church isn't getting together. It's just that the church is going to be meeting as family and friends and life groups in hundreds of homes and locations all around the area. I often talk about at the end of services how the church is leaving the building. On Sunday, December 28th, it's not even coming into the building. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be out in the world. We're going to provide family devotionals for parents and children. Um, we're going to encourage you to get together with one another outside of these walls for, for, for prayer time, for worship time, and, and then to go out alone or together, whatever you want to do, but go out and do something unexpected for somebody, to lovingly and sacrificially serve someone else, to go and actually be Jesus to someone on the Sunday after Christmas. That is going to be our spiritual act of worship. Now, we've done this before on a, on, a, on Sunday. On a Sunday, We'll probably do it again in the future. But just so you know, the reason we do it is to help, is to help shatter this, this notion that the church is about three hours a week on Sunday, maybe two or three times a month, maybe. It's not. It's not about that. You know, understand, 2,000 years ago, through the incarnation of Jesus, men, women, students, children were given the opportunity to be touched by transcendence. And that touch changed their lives, their community, their culture, their world. And I fear what's happened today is that the touch of transcendence has been lost because as the church, we've stopped engaging. We hide ourselves away in the walls, within the walls. And it's tragic because it is through our incarnational living that people experience God's love and God's grace, transcendence. But to an unfortunate extent, we've retreated. 
we've isolated or at the very least distanced ourselves from the people God cares about, who he loves and whose lives he wants to touch. And so I'm convinced the future of the church uh, rests in responding to God and to his call for incarnational engagement, which is what Jesus what Jesus said to his followers from the get-go, right? Right from the start, he said, as the Father sent me, I'm what? I am sending you. Get out there. Live for me. Love people for me. The late uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was an author who was the author of The Hobbit, a novel many of you are familiar with. Hollywood has made it uh, uh, a lot more famous. I was thinking about him this week because I heard the latest Hobbit movie uh, based on Tolkien's book is uh, coming out in theaters on uh, December 10th, so just in uh, a few days. So I was thinking about him. You know, Tolkien was an interesting guy. He was a professor of Anglo-Saxon mythology at Oxford University in, in, in England, and he was, a, he was an intellectual. He was an academic who loved to write, but he loved to write specifically these epic, heroic narratives narratives in which good and evil collide. But what many people don't know is that Tolkien was also a committed follower of Jesus, who once said this about the incarnation. He said, the incarnation of God is an infinitely greater thing than anything I would ever dare to write. The story is supreme. The story, it is true. The question for us this Advent season is, do we agree with Tolkien? Do we believe? Is it true? Do I, do you, do we really believe in God's in the fleshness? And have we placed our faith in Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus? In many respects, it's, it's easy to tell because by way of truth, mystery, and mission, the incarnation of God and our faith in it will change the way we live. It will. Not just around Christmas, but it'll change the way we live every single day. Has it changed us? Is it changing you? That's the question for Advent. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, again, as I think about the events of, of, of the world, the events of our own, within our own culture, our own society, of the division, the hate, the hopelessness, um, all of these things, I realize that legislation, more money, more government intervention, more education, all these things are good, but none of them will ultimately solve the problem of our human brokenness and our propensity to mistreat each other, and our propensity to be selfish, all these things that drive us apart as human beings, these things that kill community and ruin relationships and destroys cultures. What we need, Lord, this Christmas is you. What our culture needs is Emmanuel. What our world needs is Jesus, who our world needs. And I pray this morning that you would help us, your people, the church, to have a greater grasp on this reality. And as we think about incarnation, as we think about Advent, may we embrace the truth of Jesus. May we embrace the mystery. May we embrace the mission. May we make a difference in the lives of people you love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.